we kind of lead ourselves into the Passion Week where we kind of culminate at Easter when Jesus rises again from the dead and it's this awesome celebration that we're going to have next weekend um, about this point in Jesus' life and this point in a lot of ways that impacts us in a big way because it was the point that began our process with Jesus of being completed or being saved. Um, And so uh, I'm not going to focus on that. We're going to stay in the book of Hebrews today. Um, And this particular passage, if you need a Bible, by the way, you can put your hand up. I think today might be good because there's a lot of language that you might like want to look back and read like, did he really just say that? Because is that in the verse? Because so you can definitely just put your hand up. Uh, You can get a Bible. Um, I'm not offended if you use your phone. Um, Yeah, I'm not quite old enough yet to get like offended if I just see glowing screens on faces. So you're good to, to use your phone in the Bible. Um, uh, but if you're the kind of person who, like, the notification comes up and you're like, oh, notification, click on it, have to, have to, right? Then, you know, don't. So uh, try to focus in with me, especially because the first part of this can kind of get pretty technical, and I don't want to lose all of you uh, if you kind of jump off of what we're talking about because there's a few verse, uh, there's a few verses that are a little confusing, but also, too, there's some verbiage that's a little confusing. And so, um, actually, what I want to do first, in the hopes that this passage will um, kind of flow for us as we get into it, what I want to do is define a couple of terms, okay? Um, So, classroom setting, really fast, stay with me. I want to define a couple of things that, for me, are massively important when it comes to interpreting or understanding a passage like this one that we're going to dive into today. Um, So, the first term that you may see in this passage today is the term covenant. A covenant is sometimes defined as a contract, but it's not a contract, okay? Contracts are usually built on mistrust, right? Like, if you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. But a covenant is built on trust. Um, And it actually, biblically, it's more of a binding. A covenant is more of a bond together, as opposed to a contract, which is more of a, a contractual obligation between two people or whatever. So this bond, though, the interesting part about covenant in the scriptures is that this bond can actually be set in place. This binding can be set in place by God himself. A promise that God makes is the binding of a covenant, okay? So contract, two people have to, like, interact and do this thing, but a covenant can be binding because God himself has given a promise, okay? Uh, The second thing you might see is this, this phrase, the law. Okay, the law. Now, really quick, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, new covenant. That meant nothing to you. Those are also terms involved in this law thing. Abrahamic covenant, Abraham is this dude way back in the day who eventually his descendants will become the nation of Israel. So the promise was your descendants will be more than the sand on the seashore, right? It's this idea that, that God is promising Abraham that his descendants will be important. Mosaic Covenant, most of us know this, is like the book of Exodus, right? Or if you're old enough, it was like Charlton Heston, right? Um, Mosaic Covenant was how the law came through Moses. Okay, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. He's got the Ten Commandments, right? And then after that, most of us just kind of check out because there's like 600 other laws that are in there. Then we're just like, yeah, I, not me, right? Like, I don't get it. Like this whole going outside the camp for this or whatever else. But that was the Mosaic covenant 
law. So with the Mosaic Covenant came the law. And to the Jews, whom are the subject or recipients culturally of the passage that we're going to talk about, this law had a massive impact on their identity because they took so much pride in being the chosen people of God, the chosen people that God gave the law to, they ended up wanting so badly to follow this law. It was a part of who they were to try to be perfect. Their goal was to be perfect because they're already identified as God's people and they want to, in pride and in an identity, be perfect. Okay, another, another thing you might hear is Levitical priesthood. It's a system created from the law. The priests, essentially, were kind of their spiritual leaders. They handled the rites, rituals, worship practices, sacrifices within the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? Or, and they were the ones who tried as best they could to help the people fulfill the law. So they're the mediators between God and the nation of Israel, or, and anyone else for that matter who came to the temple, but they're the mediators trying to help these people be perfect, okay? High priest, Bren defined this a couple weeks ago, the high priest was a special leader of all those priests. That priest had a very specific role, um, and most of the time um, that role was just to lead the priests. So he was kind of the head mediator. He was kind of the one who, if you look at influence, His influence was great over the culture of the recipients of this particular passage and letter, the book of Hebrews. And the last thing we're going to look at is the order of Melchizedek. This is the last term, and then we'll actually talk about, you know, the Bible. So, order of Melchizedek was this, Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, whom today is going to be no less mysterious to you, more than likely, except that you now have a person attached to the name. And the reason for that is this, his influence culturally, on the recipients, is actually more significant because of his role of prominence over their ancestral father, Abraham. Okay? Abraham, it says, to them culturally, the person who gives a blessing or receives a tithe is greater than the person who receives the blessing or gives the tithe. Okay? And the reason it's a prominence thing. It's like, uh, it's like a, a standing in the community. This high priest, Melchizedek, receives from Abraham his tithe. And that makes Melchizedek this mysterious but impactful culturally figure. Okay. Now, as we kind of look at this passage, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to read it, and I'm not going to explain most of it until we get to verse 20 and 25. Please forgive me. Okay. I tried to give us a little definition of terms so that I didn't have to like, walk through every single piece. If you're confused, I'm sorry. (laughs) I will try really hard to help uh, you walk away with what I think this whole thing is about, okay? And for us particularly, this is crazy. Because what you're about to see, in my opinion, and, and for me, is you're about to see Jesus in his present form in a totally new light. You're about to see what Jesus is doing right now. The week before Easter, we're going to focus on Jesus' ministry right now. Let me read the passage. Verse 11 of chapter 7 of, of Hebrews says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather, the one named after the order 
of Aaron. Now again, because the recipients wanted to be perfect, their strong desire to be perfect, uh, and many of us today even want that, right? Like you and I kind of want to be perfect. Our goal, some of us are like, well, we'll never be perfect, so, but some of us are like, I would love to be perfect. That'd be awesome, right? To never make any mistake. Some of us try to bend the rules to make our feelings feel perfect, right? But it's not, doesn't make us perfect if you don't have a standard, okay? You can't just throw out all the rules and say, oh, look, I'm perfect. That's not what that is. That's not how that works, okay? So for this particular nation, and I'll, and I'll explain this in just a second, but verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Um, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Again, baby names, think about it. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, to understand all of that, all I want you to do is think about this. I want you to picture a parent. Okay, some of you that's really easy because you are parents. But picture a parent of an unruly child. Some of you are just trying to raise your hand, don't, okay? <laughs> picture a parent of an unruly child. Now, what does this parent do? This parent, oftentimes, when you have an unruly child, right, the child doesn't think they're unruly. They're just going crazy, right? Well, what happens then, right? It's like, well, don't go in there. Don't stop it. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Definitely don't touch this. Don't even come near this, right? And so as a parent, you kind of turn into this, like, rule enforcer. And all of a sudden, within your home, you've got, like, 50,000 rules, right? And so you originally, you just had this kid who was just kind of all over the place, and then you become not just the parent who gets to enjoy the kid, who gets to, and the kid gets to enjoy you, you become this rule enforcer. Some of you are still nodding. You can stop. This does happen, right? A parent of an unruly child has to make rules, right? That just makes sense. But does that actually change the kid? Does the child become any more or less unruly because of the rules? No. The rules aren't going to change the kid. The rules do not change the child. If the child is unruly, the child needs a nature change. They need something to change within them for them to be able to not be unruly. Now, the funny part about this whole thing is this. As soon as the child becomes no longer unruly, you don't need the rules. Think about this. I'll, nobody's nodding anymore, so I'm going to try again, okay? As soon as you try to give this unruly kid rules, right? You're like, don't touch this, don't do that. You've got this list. And all of a sudden you realize this list of rules is not making my child any better. And what happens? And this is so sad to me, but this does happen. And I hear this often from parents where the kid will come to them and they'll say, I'm bad. My mom and dad think I'm bad. I know I'm a bad kid. Right? And if it's a little kid, it's so sad, right? Because they say it with such conviction and clarity as if there's just nothing they can do about it. Mommy and daddy think I'm bad. They always tell me what I'm doing wrong. 
And if you've ever heard the child say this, you know that that sadness, that sense of loss for the kid, that mommy and daddy aren't enjoying me anymore, I'm not fun for them, that I don't enjoy mommy and daddy anymore because all they ever do is tell me what I did wrong. What what does that child need? That child in that moment needs something to change in their countenance, in their nature, at their core. They don't need more rules to be good because that's not going to make them good. The rules just show children and parents, is my kid good or is my kid unruly? If the rules can only reveal to the child that they're unruly, then what about rules can make someone good in a covenant? See, the understanding of the Mosaic Covenant and the rules and the laws that God gave the nation of Israel. When he laid out these rules, and they said to themselves, we want to be perfect. We want to be perfect. Okay, we're going to try to be perfect. We've got these priests. They're going to help us be perfect. We've got all the rules that God wants us to follow. And we know for a fact God has given us all we need to follow them because he's given us the rules and he's given us leaders. And he put his temple in our main city. This is awesome. God chose us. But what happens after a while? All those rules become something where you look at yourself and you go, wait a sec, I'm not following these rules. I can't do this. It's just not working out. I'm bad. I'm bad. Something's wrong with me. I mean, God chose me. God looks at me and he calls me his chosen person. But I'm bad. This is why It is so massive that Jesus came. Because even within that covenant, God makes provision for rule breaking. But it's a continual sacrificing. A continual recognition. I have to go and I have to make atonement for my sin. I've got to go every year and I've got to make atonement for my sin. And every year, I'm like thanking God that he puts up with me. Every year, I'm just going, I'm sorry again. I'm sorry again. I know I screwed up. I'm sorry again. But think about this. Similar to that child, if you look at that child and all of a sudden something happens, some sort of internal nature change within that kid. When that happens and that child begins to no longer be unruly, something beautiful happens in relationship. There's a nearness There's a bond that forms. There's a relationship. And I will tell you this, that when Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus takes away the punishment for all of our mistakes so that we don't have to constantly come and sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice so that we no longer have to come to him and go, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. Because you know what he does? You know what Jesus did in this new covenant? Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm going to make a click and I'm going to change your nature. And when I change your nature, I'm also going to change your standing before me. And when I change your standing, I no longer look at you or you can look at you or anyone else can look at you and say, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. In fact, Jesus looks at us and says, you're good. You're righteous in my eyes. That the person who you were standing-wise and action-wise. I am changing your nature. And in fact, so much so, I'm so good. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says to us, I am so good at changing your nature that I'm actually going to look at you as perfect, 
before I ever complete my work of your actions as perfect. You want to know why? Because when Jesus says he's going to do something, he finishes the job. And when Jesus finishes the job, he can literally look at us before the job is even complete and say, you're perfect. All these rules did for the nation of Israel was make them go, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. And Jesus looks at him, he's like, everybody, stop. I got this. You're good. For the first time in human existence since Adam and Eve, you're good. You're good. I changed your nature. I impacted you on a core level. I didn't just give you more rules in this covenant of mine. See, the old covenant had with it rules that showed that we were engaged in the covenant or that the Jews were engaged in the covenant. This new covenant, there is not a set of rules to follow in the new covenant. There is a person. Jesus says, I want relationship with you so much that I'm not going to give you a new set of rules to follow. I'm going to give you me. I want to be with you, and I want you to follow me. Here's what happens that way. When Jesus does this with us, when he makes that tweak, and he looks at us, and he says, instead of you talking to yourself and saying, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I want you to start seeing yourself the way I see you, which is you're good, you're righteous. I'm completing a work in you. I started something, I'm going to finish it, but, and so your actions aren't quite matching up with your identity yet, but they will, because I complete my work. And when Jesus does this, We begin to see the brilliance of Jesus as the one who is doing spiritual work in us. He is our minister. He is our high priest. He is our mediator between God and us. Now, why is that impactful for us? Because right now, in this moment, Jesus is doing work here. Jesus is doing work here, in you, in me. He is literally doing a ministry. His ministry is in you and me. And verse 20 to 25 brings out something about Jesus' ministry that I want us to see. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Implication. Jesus on the cross when he says it is finished, there is an aspect of salvation that has just begun. The process of taking people who once recognized how bad they were and making them into something new. It is finished was the beginning of the process of changing you and me. You individually, me individually, that was the beginning. So what is Jesus doing? And what is his ministry? Why is he better than anyone else at serving us and teaching us and being our leader? What makes Jesus so good at this? One thing that makes Jesus so good at this is that Jesus will always have life. No spiritual leader in the history of existence has ever been eternal but Jesus. Now, for some of you, that's not going to blow your mind. But I want you to think about this. Jesus dies on the cross, 100% human, 
100% God, right? He rises again, 100% human, 100% God. In Acts 1, we see Jesus ascending to heaven, the throne room. Follow me. The throne room of God Jesus is ascending to. And some of us, for some reason, we think that in that moment, as he rises, Jesus kind of sloughs off humanity and is just 100% God in heaven. Some of us can see Jesus and think, 100% God in heaven, 0% man. Like, clearly not man anymore, right? He's died, he's risen again, he's left. He's not man anymore. But the truth is, is that Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, rises again and brings humanity into the throne room of God. Think about this for a moment. He is one of us. He is human. And in his rising to the throne room, he brings humanity to a place it's never been before. Humanity has never sat at the right hand of God like that, other than in Jesus. Now, why is this impactful? Because the greatest high priests in the nation of Israel, you know what they did? They could go into a special room in the temple, right? And in that room, the presence of God dwelt on the earth. But Jesus is such a good high priest that he doesn't just bring us, humanity, into that special room in the temple. Jesus brings us up into the throne room of God. No one has ever taken us any higher than Jesus will ever do it. In that moment, And it says this in Colossians 3, it says, your life and my life is hidden with Christ at the right hand of the Father. That Jesus brought humanity to the throne room of God. The high priest couldn't let anyone else go into this special room in the temple. We could never go in there ourselves. We'd immediately die. But Jesus brings humanity to the throne room. This isn't God condescending to earth This is man ascending with God. This is the first time we've ever been to this lofty height. Jesus didn't just look at us and go, okay, I'm going to wipe away all the bad, okay? I'm going to help you see that you're not as bad as you thought you were. I'm just going to help you, and then I'm going to leave. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus has never left humanity. Jesus didn't slough off humanity when he went to heaven. He brought, the fa- he brought humanity with him. The second thing is that Jesus is always and will always be the high priest. In verse 23, you see the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, in the Levitical priesthood, someone would cease to be the priest when they died. That's obvious, right? Do you know that no matter what, Jesus will never stop being a personal intricately involved spiritual leader in your life, his ministry is endless toward us. And you know what else? Jesus' ministry is endless toward us in another way. The high priest had to sacrifice for his own sins. The high priest had to sleep. The high priest had to spend time dealing with his own affairs. In this passage, it says that Jesus lives. Hear me. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is not a spiritual leader who has to simply take care of his own needs on a regular basis. Jesus can focus on you and me. The first spiritual leader in history who didn't have to look after his own affairs and his own humanity because he is glorified and he is the one who is doing something amazing in you and me. 
The good news of Jesus is not just that the punishment for sin is gone, but that we have more and more relationship with our Heavenly Father because he is no longer simply enforcing rules on us, but enjoying us as his children. Hear that. That Jesus, as our mediator between, because he dies on the cross, and now our complete perfection is cemented because he will complete the work he's begun in us to make us perfect, we get relationship with God. We get to be near to him, nearer than we've ever been. God didn't have to just put a room in a temple with his presence. And like if you were in the same town, like that was pretty close to God, right? No. God says, I'm going to bring you up to the throne room in heaven. I want relationship with you so much now that I'm going to bring you to my house. I'm not going to come down to earth to be with you anymore. I'm going to bring you to heaven to be with you. That kind of love, that kind of nearness should tell you how God feels about you. That your eventual place is going to be with him that close. That God's not just going to come and build a house next to yours here on earth. But God wants you to come and build a house next to his. That is incredible nearness. And if you right now are thinking, God is distant, God is far, God doesn't like me, God is not near me, then you do not know your eventual place. Then you do not yet understand how much God wants to be close to you. Third aspect, Jesus is always interceding for us. Now, this is the crazy part, that right now, in heaven, not only is our eventual place with Jesus there, but that right now, in the throne room of God, we are being spoken of positively. That in this moment, right now, in the throne room of God, your name and my name is on the lips of the king of the universe. Wow. That I'm even known in that room is insane, but that I'm being spoken of positively, that I'm being advocated for in heaven, if we were there right now with a glimpse, we would see, I believe, just how much and how attentive God is to us. We are not hidden from him. In fact, if you're a believer, he's talking about you with the Father. And he's not saying mean things. He could, right? He could be like, oh, those rule breakers. But that's not the nature of the conversation. The nature of the conversation in heaven is, oh, look at them, they're so great, and please help them. Please, Father. The fourth thing is this. Jesus is always saving us. Now, it's, tempted, it's tempting to think of salvation as a one-time event. He died on the cross for my sin. My punishment is gone. We're all good. Thank you, Jesus. Peace out. Have a good one. Right? But that's not this. That is not salvation. In fact, Philippians 1.6 says, it's Paul speaking, he says, For I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now why is that good news too? Because if I take you back to the Jews, what do the Jews want? Their identity was built into this idea of I want to be following the law. That my identity as a Jewish person is wrapped up in following the law. And what happens what happens? They fail, they fail, they fail. And not only is the punishment removed by Jesus, 
But Jesus is going to become the minister that makes them perfect. He's going to become their spiritual leader that finally gets through, that finally takes them from what they used to be to what they will be, or what they currently are is changed in nature, and what they will be is changed in every way. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus right now is not lounging in heaven. Jesus is working on you and me. Jesus is taking his new life, the one that he rose again to have, and he is using it to do intricate, small things, big things, whatever, in your life, in my life. He is using his place as high priest to perform ministry, to do ministry on you and me. It says in this passage that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. That Jesus, his priesthood continues forever. He is not going to stop working on us until the job is done. Jesus is saving you right now. Jesus is saving you from going back to that old nature. Jesus is saving you from being the worst you could have been. And it says in this passage that he does so to the uttermost, which means this. Jesus doesn't just save us from bad into like, oh, just over good, right? Just like that little line. It's like, okay, they were bad, but they finally made it here. This is like, this is just barely good. No, he's not doing that. He's saying, I'm saving you from being bad to all good, to the uttermost. Jesus is the kind, has the kind of work ethic in ministry where he will always complete his work. He will always complete his work. Our standing with God is sure because Jesus always completes his work of making people perfect. You and I can be confident that we are being held on to by God himself, by Jesus, because Jesus is relentless in his ministry with us. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't need to look after his own needs Jesus is always, always, always working on you and me. When you sleep, when I sleep, Jesus isn't sleeping. Jesus is working. Now what this means is, I think as we, as we look at Jesus today, I think it's important for us to realize a couple of things. That right now in the throne room of God, we are being spoken well of. God does not look at us and think, man, I want them so far away from me. That he's so willing to bring us near that, in, in fact, our final place will be with him right there. Right there. The next thing is this. No matter where you're at, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who's walking with God or seeking to walk with God, whatever you did an hour ago, whatever you've done, however you've been, you don't need to make atonement for that thing. The goal of repentance is not for you to look at yourself and say, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. It's for you to look at yourself and go, Father, I am sorry for my actions, but I know that you made me good and my identity is as someone who is righteous before you. Please help me, Father. Please help me to live out the identity that you've given to me. And I am confident, Father, that you will complete this work because Jesus is relentless. Not because I'm good, but because Jesus is relentless. And he is saving us now as much as he was saving us 2,000 years ago. So as you go into this week, as you sing in a moment, the band's gonna come up.
let's remember this. Let's live in light of this, that Jesus is looking after us in a good way, that Jesus is speaking well of us in the throne room of heaven, that Jesus is working on us in every intricate detail. You do not need to hide. You do not need to fear. We are on the lips of God. We are in the mind of God. And we are loved by God so deeply that he is looking after us all the time. Father, I ask that today you would, that you would help us to see your glory in this. That you would help us to understand just how good of a high priest you really are. That you would allow us to just worship you for the fact that you are this relentless and this good to us. Father, I am floored by that. Why? Why am I being spoken about in the throne room? Who am I? Who am I that I would even be on your mind? Lord, thank you for dying for me 2,000 years ago. And thank you for living for me here and now. Living to complete your work. I realize that my salvation is right now happening. And that I will be saved. I have been saved from the punishment of sin. And I will be saved from being bad. I look forward to the day when I get to be so near to you that I'm in your throne room. And I trust that right now, as I sing and as I pray, that there is no distance between us, that you want us to be near to you. You proved it so much so that you died on a cross, you rose again, and now you live to make intercession to ensure that we will be that close one day. Thank you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.